So you're waiting in line, complaining on social media, or talking to friends about something that just doesn't work for you. How often do we think, if only the designers had thought of this or that, there's often some really easy fix that we all know would make something much, much better than it is already. I'm Manisha Amin. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kamaragal people, the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and of course, emerging. We're so excited to have you all here today with us. So often things are designed for us, but here we explore the magic that happens when we design with people, not just for them. Today, my special guest is Melinda Brianna Epler, a TED speaker, a diversity and inclusion advocate, and being the CEO of Change Catalyst, she's also a leader in building inclusive innovation across the globe. Melinda has also just released a book, How to Be an Ally. It actually goes through the practical actions you can take for a stronger and happier workplace. It's something that's much needed at the moment, and I'm so looking forward to talking to you today. Welcome, Melinda. Thank you. Me too. I'm I'm excited to talk about this. And so before we actually talk about the book itself, can you talk to us about what being an ally means and a quick background on how you ended up in the place you are today? Oh, I'm going to answer the second question first, which is uh, I have been focused on social and environmental change most all my life, really, since I was very young. And, you know, started actually as a, a documentary filmmaker worked in in LA as a documentary filmmaker for about 10 years, working to create change through storytelling and and then move from that into uh, working with companies and nonprofits and government organizations around creating social and environmental change initiatives uh, using storytelling and behavior change models and organizational change models and found my way to become an executive working at an international engineering firm in healthcare, in the healthcare space. And it was there that I had a, I had a realization that I was in a very non-inclusive environment as an executive. I was the only woman in a leadership team of 19 and the culture was not created for me. The, The processes, the systems, everything was not created for me and experienced, um, a lot of microaggressions, a lot of little everyday slights that kind of weighed me down. Uh, Megan Smith, the former White House CTO, calls them calls this death by a thousand paper cuts. The little things that every day can kind of wear you down. And I had a pretty low point uh, where I was like, "What's what's happening to me? I've been so successful in my life and my career, and it's um, you know it's." doing great things in my work and also uh, feeling like I was constantly confronted by walls and barriers and, and, uh, and depression uh, as a result of all, all of these um, little paper cuts. And, and so I read an article about toxic workplace culture and microaggressions and realized that I was in that, very much in that and started to see it everywhere and realized I could create some change in that organization. So I worked to create change in that organization and also looked for how can I create bigger impact? So 
at, at, uh, after doing some work to create change in that company, I hired some people to continue that change and then left to start Change Catalyst to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech industry. And so to get to your the second piece of your question is uh, working on diversity, equity, and inclusion over the last several years, I have realized that it's not enough for us to have one or two people or even a small group of people working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, that is not enough to create change in the organization, that it really takes all of us working together to create change. And each of us is a part of that culture. Each of us is a part of our systems that need to be changed. And so each of us needs to do the work internally and also step up as allies externally as well. So allyship is approaching people with empathy, um, showing that empathy, and um, building an understanding and then taking action on it. Um, it's learning, showing empathy and taking action at the fundamental level. It's um, really seeing the person that is in front of us, seeing the person that's next to us, and also seeing, acknowledging that maybe there should be somebody else in that room as well. And first understanding what they're going through and then doing something to be there for them, to, to, to support them, to create the changes that are needed so that that person that's not in the room comes into that room. I love the way you say that. And I, I love this more nuanced version of empathy rather than sympathy as well. Mm. How do you feel that works when, you know, when you think about your story, it's about a time when you would have needed an ally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet there are times when we can, there are always times when we need to be an ally and when we are an ally. So Mm -hmm. how do you think that you can be an ally if you've not experienced the other side? If you've not experienced exclusion? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And there are lots of, lots of folks that have. So, uh, we have released a study on the state of allyship. Uh, which is a, a research a re- work on research. We researched kind of what people want from allies, how they learn about allyship, how what they're motivated by, and then also looked at the business case um, and really, you know, how is allyship improve business outcomes? Uh, one of the things that we found is that when people first learn about the need for allyship, it's usually not their own experience. It's an experience of a colleague or a friend. Right. Yeah. So it is, you know, I absolutely think that it's really important. It's important for us to tell our stories and, and to, to tell each other uh, our own experiences and to build that trust to do that. And, and that is really where a lot of people have, have their learning moment, that big learning moment that says, ah, I need to do something different. And and that's really interesting because you've been working in this space for quite a long time now and, mm-hmm. you know, between the TED Talks and the training and I think Change Catalyst has had such a big impact even in Australia in terms of the work you've done with communities and to bring up new voices and to have a multitude of voices speak. What made you think, actually, it's time to write a book now on top of all of this work I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, when I when I did, gave the TED Talk was in in 2018, and uh, I, it it reached a million people in 24 days. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was it was shocking. I had no idea uh, that would happen. And one of my one of my team members said, "It's creating impact in your sleep." And I was, "Oh, I love that." 
that is why I wrote the book, right? That is what right. that is why I wrote the book so that I can replicate myself in some way and and really help people along their journey without having to be there and and also give people a tool, give groups a tool to uh, work together to learn and uh, create change together as well. And and it, there are so many people who are ready to be a good ally, who are ready to be a good advocate and don't know what to do. And so I really created the book to give people the skills, the understanding and the skills that they need to um, really take action. And so one of the things we hear a lot, and I've heard more and more recently, is this idea of being an aspiring ally. So I'm aspiring to be an ally as opposed to I I am an ally. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether you think being an ally is something we just do or whether it's a journey that we aspire to? Is there an end point? Uh, there's no point at which you stop being an ally and say, I'm done because I've accomplished it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, we're all on our own journey of allyship and we're all, we all, there's room for all of us to learn more and do more and um, be better, be better humans um, for each other. So um, we're, I would say we're all a work in progress and that, that, that term, the aspiring ally is, you know, you can't really say I'm a good ally myself. Other people have to tell you, um, you know, that you're doing what you intended to do and it's effective, uh, but you can say I'm aspiring to be a good ally. And, and, and that is, that is the key. That is the, the kind of um, what helps drive us forward and, and help us continue to, to do this work. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's, it's a consistent journey. And, and I would say that over my lifetime, I have learned how to be a better ally for, you know, for, for different groups at different times in my life for, for black people, for Latinx people, for indigenous people at different times in my life than for women, than for people with disabilities, um, people who are Asian and, uh, LGBTQIA plus and so on. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a constant learning journey that I think all of us are on in different points in that journey. And so, you know, and you've mentioned so many groups there, and I think this is the the beauty and the challenge of allyship is that the world has been constructed in a way that means that there are so many different people who are missing out at different times mm -hmm. um, and, and different ways. And we talk a lot about this notion of educating oneself, and I know you talk about this a lot in the book as well, this idea of learning and unlearning. And when people say educate yourself, don't just um, put the burden of education on the person that you're trying to support. Mm -hmm. What are some of the best ways to learn about groups without burdening them with your weight of inexperience? Yeah, well, uh, there's a, there's this great platform called Google <laughs> right. that can tell you so many different things. Um, uh, there there are so many people that have written books that have. Uh, written articles that have uh, written uh, that have recorded podcasts and YouTube videos. And there's so many different ways to learn without asking someone uh, and, and putting that burden on someone. There are some things that we can't learn that way as well. And I want to make sure that's clear too, that, you know, it is still okay to ask somebody what their pronouns are. If you can't find that on the internet, you can't find that on their LinkedIn profile, which is there, there for a lot of people now. If you can't, if you don't know how to pronounce their name, which is also on LinkedIn now, then ask, 
Uh, if you don't know how to, to describe their, their disability, ask, ask, um, um, ask someone. Uh, so there are some things that, that we can't learn uh, on the internet, but the vast majority of things we can start uh, learning first. We can, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, right? To give people that first foundational learning before having to um, ask people. And, you know, and I've been thinking the things that you've described are actually things that help us to communicate effectively with a different person, whoever mm-hmm. that person may be. But when you're not saying things like, tell me about your experiences, tell me about when you've been excluded, tell me about your life story um, mm-hmm. so that I can understand there. And I think that's a really important differentiator that you've made that um, when we learn, it's it's to learn context. You can do that through Google. We can watch movies. We can read books to understand stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in language, and what language, um, in general, generally speaking, what what language um, do you use versus what language do you not use? What is a microaggression? All of those things you can learn on your own. Um, so, so what is a microaggression? While we're on that topic, oh sure, um, yeah. So microaggressions are little everyday slights, belittlements, um, things that make me, people feel unheard, unwelcome, othered, um, the little insults and they can be verbal. They can be nonverbal. That's really important. Uh, you know, so that it can be, especially in our, uh, highly remote Zoom world right now. There are so many little things that we can do with our facial expressions that could be microaggressions as well. So that's important to, to, to keep in mind too. That we often think of microaggressions as verbal, but there are nonverbal ones as well. Um, they, um, they, they can feel some, make somebody feel tokenized, um, or, uh, unheard, unsafe and, and like they don't belong essentially, uh, and, and over time, the, the impact can be pretty significant. In the short term, uh, it often will, you can produce a, an amygdala response where it's a, a fight, freeze, or flight response in someone, which as a result of that response, you're not um, able to be as creative or innovative. Uh, you know, when you're talking about design, you're, you're, not, you're not able to bring your full self into that, that project. And in the long term, the studies show that it, it has long-term health of health effects as well. Um, that stress response can turn into um, um, lots of different uh, health outcomes, negative health outcomes as well. And I think that there's something quite insidious about microaggressions as well. When you talked about, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, that mm-hmm. for the person on the receiving end of a microaggression, it can seem like something quite small mm-hmm. and often the person who's saying it says, I didn't mean it. It was just a joke. Why are you taking that so seriously? All of those sorts of comments. Uh, and, and if you're in a position of vulnerability, sometimes we're going, you know, I can deal with this. This is okay. You know, water off a duck's back. But as you say, it, it, these things do build up. So as an ally watching this scenario play out, sometimes it can be really hard to know when to step in or how to step in especially when it's not a blatant piece of disrespect. Mm -hmm. Like we're not hiring that person because of their colour, their clothing, their skin, their abilities, but these smaller but in some ways just as lethal types of aggression. Have you got some 
feedback for our listeners in terms of how they can deal with these when they see them or when they think that that's what's happening behind the scenes? Yeah, there are a few things. One is if somebody is not intending to create harm, they're likely much more open to that feedback. So I think that's really important for us to know. And it may be that you uh, talk with them in the moment. It may be that you talk with them after the moment and and pull pull them aside. I would say that generally speaking, calling people in and uh, into a conversation, and you and I have talked about this actually uh, in my podcast, (laughs) is that that (laughs) idea of uh, calling people in uh, to a conversation, bringing people into that space of that safe space of uh, exploring how that might have created harm. And, and in that process, you might also share your own journey. You know, if it's, it's something that you have done before and learned about, that's an, a great, a great way to bring somebody in to that conversation. I, you know, I used to say that too. And then I learned that it actually causes harm because of this. And, and so this is what I say instead, you know? Right. Yeah. So, so, so calling people in it and, and then, you know, there's a lot more in, in my book that I talk about and really yes. walk through a process, but it, uh, I, there are also just lots of ways that we can quickly um, interrupt a microaggression. You know, microaggressions can can be interruptions. You know, somebody is constantly interrupting uh, a, generally a woman or, or a person of color in the room. You can you know, make the space for them to say, to, to, to talk, right. You can, you know, we haven't heard from Melinda in, in a long time. And, and I know she's been trying to get a word in let's, let's let her hear, hear her speak. Let's, let's, let's hear what she has to say, or, you know, so interrupting microaggression, interrupting interruptions is an easy thing for us to do. And it happens so much in the workplace and reduces people's ability to have their voice and perspectives heard. Uh, the other thing is, I, I would say is that we forget often about the impact. And, you know, when we're intervening, it's really focused on educating the the person, the microaggressor, the person who is uh, in the act of uh, creating a microaggression. The other piece of it is that it does actually cause somebody harm. And so what do you do about that? How do you treat the impact and check in with that person and make sure that they're okay? See if there's anything else um, that you might do See if there's anything you could have done better in the moment as well, uh, if they're ready for that conversation. And 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 as managers and leaders, I also believe it's very important to recognize both the short-term impact of that microaggression, which could be somebody was left out of a meeting they should have been in. What are you going to do as a manager to make sure they have the information and they still have that presence, you know, in right. moving forward? Because that there can be repercussions to their career. Uh, So as a manager and as a leader, what are you doing to uh, mitigate the possibility that uh, that harm is created in the first place by educating people around microaggressions and uh, working to ensure that there is a safe space for people to call each other in? And then how are you treating the impact as well? And I love the examples you've given because they're really practical, simple examples. It's not like you know, it's quite easy, in my view, might not always be easy, but mm-hmm. it's easier in a meeting to say, actually, we haven't heard from this person. And that interrupt is a really easy way of doing this. If you might not have the confidence to go up to that person and say, actually, I don't like the way you've just spoken. Or mm-hmm. 
have you thought maybe this might be impacting on somebody in a in a different way? So I think that one of the things I, I learned from your book as well is that there are these easy solutions. It doesn't have to be this big step to become an ally. That Those small, simple steps that we can do every day can make such change as well. Yeah, and if so many people kind of get stuck in the learning that phase of learning and that, that early step of learning around allyship and just are afraid to take the next step of taking action. And it is really just take one action, take one action at a time and gradually increase those actions as you get more, I wouldn't say comfortable, it's always a little bit uncomfortable, but as you get uh, more fluent in, right. in allyship. So one of the lovely things we did this time around was we asked some of the people in our community to ask us questions as well about allyship because we were so lucky to have you on our podcast today. And mm. one of the questions that came up, and it comes up a lot, I think, in our work is how do you start to build trust with somebody from a marginalized group? Yeah, trust is a it's a big topic. We could have a whole mm. episode on that topic, I think, too, uh, because you need some psychological safety uh, within right. that space in order to build trust. I would s start with, I mean, how do you build trust with the people that are now your best friends, the people that are now your, your closest colleagues, your, your, your partners, you, you had to start somewhere. And it, usually it's with a conversation. Usually it's right. getting to know them. Right. So the, the, the key and, and, and it's a little bit more difficult right now with, so many people in working remotely, you have to actually build in those times to get to know people, but build in those times, uh, you know, um, get to know people in different ways and get to know more about who they are and what drives them. And who they are might not just be their marginalization, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're all complex humans and with intersectional, intersectional aspects of identity and very important to allow people to present themselves as who they are, right? Rather than imposing on them who they are. What's the first step when you're working with businesses and organizations and they say, look, we're really excited, we're passionate, we've started on this journey, we've started to read, we've started to look around. What's the next step that we could do to really scale up our allyship? When you can go through the steps in the book, it, it is progressively bigger steps. And, you know, you start with learning, unlearning, relearning, and doing no harm. And, and then, you know, eventually get to leading the change and transforming your organization and your industry and your society. So these are the next steps is how do you, how do you continue to act as an ally, as an advocate to lead the change internally in your company? How do you, work to address some uh, imbalances in or organizational systems and processes? How do you, how do you work to address the biases and, and microaggressions within those? Right. Uh, and, and really you know, most organizations are not diverse enough. So how, how do you work to create that change as well? So that um, your company is really representative of the community that you're in. And so, and are you seeing a change at the moment? So, you know, we've had a crazy two years, but we've also had a lot of conversations in the last two years about diversity and inclusion that we perhaps weren't having mm -hmm. um, before COVID, before Black Lives Matter, before Me Too. Um, 
have you seen a change in the way organizations are tackling inequity now? You know, there are different organizations doing different things. And I would say just in general, we're getting better, but not very fast. (laughs) Not fast enough for a lot of us, for sure. You know, the uh, working in the tech industry, which is, uh, I've worked a lot in the tech industry, and then we're now expanding into other industries as well, but I've been able to really observe the tech industry in different parts of the world. And I will say that, you know, the industry started with um, really basic steps around diversity, equity, inclusion, developing ERGs, employee resource groups, or affinity groups, which are very important to uh, build a place where people feel safe. Um, to be who they are within their identity. And, um, and, and, you know, the next step of ERGs is to um, give them the power and the resources to be able to create change. Uh, but at the beginning, it was developing ERGs and implementing unconscious bias training and perhaps hiring one person to lead diversity, equity, and inclusion, maybe two. And, you know, that's not enough to create change. And I would say that in some ways, by spending so much time and focus on unconscious bias training, um, which has been proven to not be very effective on its own, right? And can cause Absolutely. more bad than good if done on its own and done wrong, that, you know, it, it has set, a, it set us back in, in a lot of ways. Mm. And, and we're kind of organizations are now starting to some organizations are now starting to work on the the deeper systemic changes and also the training and the skills building that's needed because, you know, you can't just tell somebody to change. You have to actually give them the skills to do so. One of the things I've been noticing recently is when I look at the conversation around equity in the tech world, the things you're talking about and we're talking about here are higher order change processes Mm -hmm. but when I see that it's really hard to get statistics even on the number of women people of color Mm -hmm. in these uh, you know in these large tech organizations and 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 that in fact some of this is not even still being counted what do you think that's about some of it is um, legally, they're uh, counting uh, depends on what country you're in as to what right. you can count. So some of it is legal, and one could argue that maybe we should change that system, <laughs> right? No, I don't know how right. many people are working on that. So that is that is a piece of it. I I, I think there is also you know I I'm in the United States where um, it is a little bit more normalized to ask those questions and to uh, and people are generally okay with answering those questions, but you, um, in other parts of the world and in Australia, I think it it is, Mm. um, not as normalized and, and people, especially white people, I would say resent questions around race, don't want to answer them. Um, and you know, that says to me that maybe there is a, a, a cultural issue that needs to be solved there that, that, that maybe is just new and, uncomfortable <laughs> to talk about race. Absolutely. Yeah. And but do you think that so sometimes when we talk about the diversity and inclusion spectrum we start with the we need to count first, we mm-hmm. need a benchmark mm-hmm. before we go to some of the other 
I guess, some of the other areas, that if we don't know where we started from, we don't know where we need to go to. And I don't have a view on this. I'm just really fascinated in, in your view on whether that step needs to happen for the next two or three steps to occur. It doesn't have to happen. Uh, but it, And I was, it doesn't have to happen. So it's not an excuse for not create, creating change, not taking action, for sure. I would say that if you, you know, any kind of work that you do around organizational systems, organizational culture, culture change, uh, you it's better to create a baseline and really understand kind of where you are first and what levers you need to pull what to to really create that change in the the most effective way. So I, ideally, d- d- data can help you do that, um, and also right. can help you measure what interventions are working, what interventions are not working as well, and where you need to really focus your time. You know, if you can also do that measurement at the team level, you can kind of see what's happening uh, across different teams or different regions as well to to really go deeper into what's needed for change. So it it definitely is helpful to gather data if you can, but not an excuse for not creating change. Right. When I think about allyship and leaders, in some ways, the conversation is very different because Mm -hmm. leaders have been taught to lead and sometimes allyship is not about necessarily being the voice of the leader. So how do we work with leaders to create change? And what are the biases that we sometimes see in the leadership sector? I have multiple answers to that question. The first is that sometimes we forget that leaders are humans. And, yeah. right, and that, that they are all on this journey as well. And, and a lot of leaders are earlier on the journey. And so you need to meet them where they are. Um, you can't force somebody to do something where they're really not ready yet. They don't have the skills and the understanding yet. So what I have noticed and kind of going back to your question earlier around what is different around diversity, equity, and inclusion, what has changed is there are companies that are now really focused on building the skills and understanding at the leadership level. And that starts with the similar things that we all need to learn around making sure that we're doing no harm and, you know, starting there is really important for leaders as well. And then on top of that, layering on top of that, what a leader's role is in creating systemic change across the organization, really modeling that change. So they have that additional responsibility of, of showing that it's important across the organization and modeling what it looks like, uh, which means you kind of have to start with leadership early, early, early in this process so they can do that effectively and build the knowledge to get there. And I think the other part of your question is that a lot of leaders kind of assume that everything is, that the status quo is is okay. It's status quo bias, actually. Um, it's the one, of, one of the biases that I write about in the book is, is that, you know, the business is doing fine and so we don't need to change anything. I am fine where I am, so I don't need to change anything. And the reality is that isn't setting your business up for long-term success. We need diversity for innovation, right? And we also hopefully don't want to build companies that are actively excluding people and creating wealth gaps and um, in, in our society. And so we do need to create that change. Melinda, well, if you think back to the work you've done and 
if you look at the system around you at the moment and we think about something that would be better or stronger if it was designed with you rather than for you, what would one thing be where there's obviously a failure that would really benefit or would have benefited from having your voice at the table? Mm. Well, I believe really strongly in the power of storytelling to create change in a positive change and also to perpetuate harm. And so it's not a thing so much as, uh, well, it is, I guess, a, an idea, which is the, the common storytelling narratives that we tell, whether that is, you know, common narratives around women, which are often designed and have been over the years designed by men. And that has created a lot of harm for ourselves, for society in general. The same common narratives around Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and Asian people are often designed by white people. And uh, imagine a world where um, Indigenous people were able to shape their own narrative from the beginning. How different a world we would live in, right? Um, the same uh, around people with disabilities. Uh, the narrative is often shaped by people who don't have disabilities. Imagine uh, how different, both uh, systemically and culturally, and also internally, for our self-esteem, for our self-worth, for our health and wealth and outcomes, uh, as well as the systemic issues around unfairness and injustice and a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion that's perpetuated by this, some of those stories. And that's such an incredible and um, such a powerful way of viewing this as well, because I think the stories that are told outside get repeated inside in a different mm-hmm. way, and it's normally a blame way, right? Because mm-hmm. um, when we believe those stories that are out there and something wrong happens or there's a schism, it's very easy to say, well, that must be about me mm-hmm. or I'm not worthy rather than thinking, well, actually the system shouldn't have been like that in the first place. Right, right. And it's, you know, it's how we end up with imposter syndrome. It's how we end up feeling tokenized. It's how we end up covering and code switching and all, all of these things because we're internalizing those, those stories. So listening to those stories and amplifying those stories mm. could be something we do to well, today, really, forget tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It changed the narrative. And, and also, I think it's important for all of us to recognize the stories that we consume and really, really pay attention to that. Who is telling the stories that we consume? And maybe you shake that up a little bit. Right. Well, thank you so much, Melinda. That was fantastic. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. I highly recommend that people purchase the book, How to Be an Ally, and learn more and hear more and read more about this incredible topic that I think is fundamental to anybody who wants to see the system change and to see more people included. Thank you. It's so nice to have this conversation with you. We could go on and on for hours. And you can you can find my book at melindabriannaepler.com too. And we'll have it on our show notes as well so people can access Melinda's book from there as well. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the With Not For podcast. If inclusive design is something you'd like to learn more about, or if you'd like to work with us, please do connect us at the Centre for Inclusive Design or myself on LinkedIn, or head to our website, centreforinclusivedesign.org.au. 
The links can be found in the episode show notes. 